This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. So glad to have you with us. I have someone on this week that I've wanted to talk to for a long time. The legend, Danny Trejo. He's undeniably one of the hardest working people in Hollywood, with over 380 film credits to his name. His early life of crime and hard prison time is bigger and more dramatic than anything Hollywood can come up with, and his drive to help others is unstoppable. I'd say that almost everyone knows Danny Trejo. His career spans from Runaway Train to Blood In, Blood Out. He starred in Heat with De Niro and Pacino, Con Air, Machete, Desperado. Breaking Bad fans know him as Tortuga. You recognize that huge tattoo. He got it in prison of a beautiful woman that's been featured in a ton of his movies. Trejo's been shot, stabbed, and killed so many times I can hardly count. But he's also beloved by our kids as Uncle Machete in Spy Kids. At 76, he's not slowing down. He has over a dozen films listed in post-production to come out when things start coming back to normal. I talked to Mr. Trejo about his incredible journey. He never forgets his roots. He still lives in Pacoima, California, where he grew up and started on a very early path of drugs and crime. Heroin at 12, hard prison time at San Quentin and Folsom, among others. Out of prison, he vowed to transform his life, to help others. He started working as a drug counselor, which he still does. A chance meeting with another fellow ex-prisoner, screenwriter Eddie Bunker, led him on his way. He went from extra, inmate number one on the call sheet, to playing the lead. Danny Trejo is many things. He's an entrepreneur, he has a new cookbook out, and he also owns a restaurant chain called Trejo's Tacos, one of Anthony Bourdain's favorite L.A. spots. Danny Trejo is a very different neighbor in Pacoima today than he was as a kid. He's dedicated himself to helping his community. The kids all know him. You'll find him driving around with socks and clothes in the trunk of his car to give to those in need. And mostly, he continues to counsel addicts, speak at state prisons, and at juvenile halls. And he's still making kick-ass entertainment. There's now an excellent new documentary about his larger-than-life life, and it's called Inmate Number One. All right, fellas, let's do this. My name's Danny Trejo. You might have seen me once in a while. Desperado, Heat. Dust Till Dawn. Con Air. Machete. They make movies and stories about guys like Danny. Danny is that guy. Danny was in a high-stakes world from a very young age. Addicted to heroin since he was 12. He was just a kid, caught up in the game. I had a sawed-off shotgun and a hand grenade. I buried him, and I told my mom, be real careful in the backyard. <laughs> this is a guy who's seen death just to get to 16 years old. It's like the Wild West. You're going to be a criminal. Be a criminal 24 hours a day. Wow. His name rang through every prison. They knew he was coming. They always knew he was coming. I'm going to be top predator no matter what. It's clear they're going to kill me. 
I made a promise to myself, start trying to do good. I became a drug counselor. An opportunity to help somebody one night got him into his first movie. My career took off immediately. The first five years, I just played inmate number one. Cholo number one. Essay number one. Number ten. Eddie Bunker, screenwriter, goes, you're Danny Trejo. He says, we're not movies that people are afraid of you. I wanted to say, why me? <laughs> Quinn and I were coming up with a bunch of fake trailers. I said, I got a fake trailer. It's Machete. It changed the paradigm of who could be a leading man. Everything good that has happened to me has happened as a direct result of helping someone else. Everything. It's the idea that I can evolve. That's Danny's life. Primero tengo que decir que Treos Tacos, los mejores en California. Gracias. I had the carne asada and the baja fish, and it was absolutely wonderful. You're in LA. Are you in Los Angeles? No, but I was um, raised in LA, in Temple City, in our coast, Arcadia. Arcadia. That's close to the racetrack. Exactly. When I was in a camp, a juvenile camp, we used to clean up the racetrack yes, uh, when I was a bad kid. <laughs> well, we're going to get into a little bit of that. But first of all, I want to say thank you so much for your excellent documentary and that honest look at your life. You've said so many inspiring things. And one of the things I read um, that you said in the interview is, it doesn't matter where you start, it matters where you finish. So I thought maybe we'd start there. Tell me a little bit about 10, 11-year-old Danny. What, what were your dreams at the time? Well, you know, when I was 10 and 11, my dad was married to his job. You know, his construction, and he took real pride in what he did. And his whole thing was to, you know, to get a house and get a car and get a pickup truck. And, and uh, my mom... This was the 50s, so my mom was married to her house. You know, as a, she was a housewife, and 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 you know, no no strike against them, but that's that they didn't really have time. You know, I think I think when you're raising a a child, a kid, and I don't want to sound like a like a crybaby, but when you're, when you're, you know, time, spending time with them is the most important thing in the world. Like, whether it's good time, bad time, doesn't matter as long as it's time with them, you know? And, uh, and so they just didn't have really a lot of time for me. So I had an uncle who happened to be, <laughs> happened to be six years older than me. He was the oldest of my dad, the youngest of my dad's brothers. He was the, the youngest of 11 kids. So my grandmother, my grandmother and grandfather were kind of, they didn't have time for him either. So, so me and him became really close, my uncle Gilbert, and he happened to be a drug dealer and, and an armed robber. And uh, so I, that's, that's kind of where, that was my role model, you know, because I didn't, you know, God, I used to hear my dad just, complain about how hard he worked. And I, I think when I was 10, 11 years old, I already wanted to be like my uncle. You know, I wanted to wear, I wanted to wear sharp shoes. My uncle had $200 shoes and that was like the left one, you know, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and he had like, you know, you know, like 
80 90 dollar pants and beautiful shirts and and like he dealt drugs so he was always had had big guys around him and by big guys i mean that were well known in the neighborhood and stuff you know and uh and i that's i, I that's what that was my role model and, and he and, introduced you to some heavy shit oh yeah he turned me on to grass when i was like eight and i was smoking grass you know i used to like smoke grass with him all the time and then and then at 12 right at 12 uh that's why when he says 10 and 11 i was already smoking grass and then at, at 12 he gave me a, a fix of heroin well he didn't give it to me he tried not to but I, I i i threatened to tell my grandmother what he was doing if he didn't so so i snitched my way in using heroin and uh and then uh uh you know from then on it was just kind of my parents lost control completely you know when when you once once you've used hard drugs that's your mom and dad, you know? And my uncle was the main person in my life, you know? And uh, when I graduated from junior high, what was I, I in the 10th grade, I think I was 15, I, I, I was gone for like, I graduated on a Friday and my dad found me like on Wednesday, I think, you know, it was like, I went and celebrated with my uncle and it was just, there was just no, you know, whether uh, this is before they had a detox or a you know all they had was juvenile hall you know i visited that quite quite often and, you know juvenile hall was no threat to me it was once you go to jail the the fear of jail is is gone and and when i went to jail there was so many mexicans there i thought we were supposed to go you know there's I couldn't believe it. it was Mexican, African American, very, but it, <clears throat> it wasn't. Ra I, people say, "Well, that's racist." No, it was economics. Economics, yeah, you know, economics. It was, you know, poor people. There was, there was a lot of. There wasn't any rich African Americans. There wasn't any rich Mexican. There wasn't any rich white guys. You know, they could all get out, get attorneys. There was this. It was it was economics. We were destined to go to to go to juvenile hall, and once you get caught up in that, it becomes a way of life. It's just there's no fear, so you know. And uh, I understand that you you sold four ounces of sugar to a federal agent. That was the the time you went to prison for the longest. Right? That had it was a what they call a sale in loot of narcotics. Well. <clears throat> Well, the federal, the feds, the federal, the federal government was the one that caught me because they thought I was this huge drug dealer, but I was selling sugar to everybody. Else. I mean, we. You must have had a lot of enemies. I, everybody hated me. I mean, basically, I mean, it's like, and and <clears throat> me and a, and a friend of mine, Dennis. Uh, you know, we thought we were just like the biggest gangsters in the world. We had plenty of guns and, and you know, we would, we would burn people or, or rob people and then tell them where we live, you know, tell them where, you know, and so in case you want to come get us, you know, and, and well, it was kind of a death wish. It's kind of you, you reach a point to where there's no turning back. So 
you know, oh, forgive me, anybody that's in prison, please forgive me for saying this. But the Fed saved me. When they arrested me, they saved me. It wasn't, it wasn't an arrest. It was a rescue. Because I was, I was, me and Dennis, I think, were both begging to die, you know. And, yeah. and, uh, and what about Gilbert? Well, Gilbert was in prison. Gilbert, yeah, Gilbert went back and forth to prison, you know. And uh, when I got arrested for that, he had just, he got out, you know, when I was, when I got arrested for that. And then that was uh, 1965. I did 65, 66, 67, 68. I got out August 23rd of 1969. And in 1968, I just kind of, I'm done. You know, it's like, I'm either gonna gonna spend the rest of my life in prison or I am going to take drugs and alcohol out of my life. And see the, the, one of them, the biggest problems that ruined my drug career was that I happened to, walk into a 12-step program when I was 15 years old. And this guy, he gave me the curse of 12-step programs. He said, Danny, if you leave, you will die, go insane, or go to jail. And I left, of course. You know, there's 20 of us. We all left. And and, uh, every time I got arrested, I would hear this guy's voice. Die, go insane, or go to jail. And at first it was kind of, <laughs> yeah, right. But then when you're in like San Quentin State Prison and over the loudspeaker, 12 steps, it's now a meeting in the Protestant chapel, all inmates wishing to attend. You look and you hear, die, go insane, or go to jail. And you're sitting in prison. So it's like in, in Soledad in 1969, I remember when I was in prison, this guy named Johnny Harris, my sponsor, came up to, to, he was an outside speaker, and he said, Danny, why don't you join us and give yourself a break and join us when you're outside? I remember laying on my bunk in 1969, August 22nd, and I'd given away everything in my cell that was of importance because I had a beautiful cell. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go. I got to go. I got to go to a meeting before I do anything. I did. And so the seed was planted. And and, and it's funny, when I told Johnny that I walked into that meeting in 1959, he said, Danny, those were previews of coming attractions. And they were. <laughs> but tell me about one of the things you said about San Quentin and others is that either you're predator or prey. What, what do you yeah. mean by that? You have people that have been in prison 5, 10, 15, 20 years, have absolutely no means of support, you know. So they're either going to be preyed upon or they're going to be the predators. See, if somebody comes in and you check their books, you know, you check their jacket, their record and everything, and you find out who they have writing to them, who they have, how much money they have on their books. And so here's a guy with $300 on his book. His mother writes to him every other week. His sister writes to him. And so then this, so this guy, unless he's a killer, he's prey. It's that simple. It's like the only thing that saved me I was a predator, but 
we would go to somebody who had who was going to be prey and would say look people are going to prey upon you you can pay us and we'll keep them off you or don't and you can just be prey and sometimes no no i'll take care of myself but when they came back with a black eye you know because they got beat up okay what do i do now outside you would call that extortion inside it's survival you, you know what I mean? you're like yeah like a predator protector so to speak exactly and so 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 a prey protector you're protect you're you're protecting the prey but but you better be a predator you know that means you would have to be willing to do whatever it took to protect your investment you know what i mean this is my livelihood so if somebody approaches them and they say that then you have to go and if they say hey this guy's you know asking me for money or then you have to go and do whatever it takes and now that means that the two predators you know one of them isn't going to survive and you were also a great boxer that uncle of mine gilbert he was a golden glove champion he was an amazing fighter and uh, he was just built perfect for fighting and he started training me when when i was eight we'd smoke weed and box you know and we'd like this box and that that made me a a celebrity in the penitentiary the minute people know that you box you know we used to have it's funny because we'd have people from the outside come in from san quentin and we were going to put on the exhibition but the problem was that mexicans don't understand exhibition and the 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 mob the mafia would come up and go hey we got money on you homes so come on no no no. wait it's exhibition (laughs) and and so i would either have to tell this guy i was fighting look, uh, we better fight because, uh, you know, or I would have to surprise him and just try to knock him out because they, they didn't like losing. It, am I correct that you were a year and a half in solitary confinement? Well, God, I was, I was like, uh, the last time I was, what, from August? No, I was from uh, Cinco de Mayo to 1968. To August 23rd, 1968. I think the longest was about three months at a time, but back and forth all the time. How do you survive that? Me, what I used to like to do, because you have to like, kind of go crazy to keep from going crazy. I used to act out the Wizard of Oz. Oh, the whole movie? The whole movie. I just, I, she gave me, give me those shoes, Dorothy. The whole kind of <laughs> And, and uh, I remember the guards would hear me. They'd come by, Trejo, what's wrong with you? I'd say, did you kill my sister? <laughs> He's nuts, you know. But but it's your survival mode. You, you, you understand? It's like you're not, you're not paying attention to them. If you pay attention to them, you will go crazy. If you sit there and say, my God, how many hours have I been here? Oh, you'll go nuts. And then the other one I used to love was, was Charles Lawton, the, the hunchback of Notre Dame. She gave me water. Yep, God, I used to love that. And I would act it all out. <laughs> uh, uh, Mario, Mario did four years in the hole. That's my assistant now, right? And my cousin did what, four years, five years 
No, and he was 17 when he went to prison, and we got him out when he was 55. So he's basically a 17-year-old mind in a 55-year-old body because you're you're you stop growing emotionally once you once you're in prison. You just stop. And uh, his name right now is in the law books because we. We talked to Jerry, uh, the governor at the time. We talked to senators to get him out of prison because he was a juvenile sentenced to life in prison. And we helped get him out. So now 4,500 juveniles that were sentenced that have already done 30, 35 years, are, are, there's, there's about 4,500 of them that have gotten out because of that law. Okay, oh, good. When I go to juvenile hall and I tell people, it doesn't matter what, where, you, where, where you start. It matters where you finish. And I look at, because I look at kids, when you're in juvenile hall, because of the system, you feel like you've been thrown away. Is, you've been thrown away. And I tell them, look, you're, right now you're in juvie. You can start right here on a different path. Now, the path you take, you can either end up in San Quentin, Folsom, or go into the gas chamber like me, or you can just go on a different path. Start doing everything you can for your fellow man, and you watch and see. And for me, it's like I made a vow to say the Lord's name every day and 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 do whatever I could for my fellow man. And I've held, I've, 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 I've kept my promise, and he's kept him. I even talked to God a couple of days ago, and I asked him, how am I doing? He said, great, Danny, you're almost out of hell. Keep it up. Because, <laughs> yeah, because that's exactly what you say. You say everything good that has happened to me comes as a direct result of helping others. Everything. And that's God's honest truth. Everything. Yeah. After you got out of prison, you became a drug counselor, which you still are. And from this became your massive film career. I was running around trying to be an extra, cause, but I wasn't, I wouldn't want to be a movie. In the movies, I just, you could get 50 bucks cash for standing there and looking mean. Can you, you know, look like a, look like an inmate. Like, I just stand there. You, that's great. That's great. It's so funny. I'd be standing there and, and uh, directors would like, look at me like, we hear Stan, they put me out front and I had this massive tattoo on my chest, take off your shirt. And so one day, one of the kids that I was working with says, you know, we go to this movie called uh, Runaway Train. And it was funny, it was like- uh, You got sent there because as a drug counselor, right? Well, I went there to help this kid. So we got sent to this movie and, and I'm with this kid. I run into this friend of mine named Eddie Bunker. The screenwriter. Famous writer, right? And he says, I, I, well, he goes, Trejo. I go, yeah. He says, I saw you win the lightweight and the welterweight title up in San Quentin. I go, you're Eddie Bunker. We started talking. I knew this guy. And uh, we're in prison together. And he says, what are you doing here, Danny? I said, shit, I'm, I'm making 50 bucks, huh? And he says, uh, he says, you know what? Are you still boxing? I go, no, man, I'm 40 years old. Go, are you kidding him? I don't get hit in the face anymore. And he said, uh, uh, we need somebody to train one of the actors how to box. And I said, what's it pay? And he says, 320 a day. And I says, how bad you want this guy beat up? That's, that's hit money. That's somebody getting hurt. And he said, I wasn't making that a week, even plus the 50 bucks. And so 
He said, no, no, you got to be careful. This actor's really high strung. He might sock you. I said, Eddie, for 320 bucks, give him a stick. I got been beat up for free. And I started training an actor named Eric Roberts out of box for a movie called Runaway Train. And uh, that's where it took off. Yeah. And from there, I, from there to right now, I've done over 300. Yeah, some, I don't know what they got me at. I stopped. And, uh, and you were mentioning that tattoo that Eddie, that he, he recognized, because that's a prison tattoo, right? That's done with like a needle, isn't it? That, yeah, that's done with a with the an E string of a guitar, uh, melted into a, a end of a toothbrush, with wrapped string around it to hold the ink and just poke, 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 poke. And poke, it's poke, a big poke. one. That's the one where the listeners will recognize that beautiful woman there. <laughs> Who is she? It's funny. She she looks but must like Selma Hayek because when I met I met Selma Hayek. I was staring at her. She kept looking. I met her on, on uh, Desperado. I said, you know what? You may not know it, but I have you tattooed on my chest. And she didn't believe it. I showed you, oh, my God. I, I opened my shirt. And she was like, my God. What you? And I said, I put that on before you were born because I was dreaming of you. And, and she, was, she said that. I don't know, but she said that one time in an interview for this huge... <laughs> but she's a very, very dear friend of mine, you know, and we did Desperado together. We did uh, uh, Machete together. We did Once Upon a Time in Mexico together. She's an amazing, amazing woman. You know? She invited me when, when I was a single parent and my kid's mom would pick up my kids on Thanksgiving. And she asked me, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Dad? I said, ah, nothing. I'm, you know, just go find turkey somewhere. Let her have my kids. And so night before Thanksgiving, she called me and invited me to her house with her family. I was so, uh, I couldn't. And then to see Selma Hayek barefooted in the kitchen, making a turkey was like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> you worked with her, Roberto Rodriguez. You've worked with everyone. What movie propelled you from being inmate number one and the extra um, in the credits? The first time I had a name, I did a movie called Penitentiary 3, right? And I, I, my name was Severe. I didn't really talk. I just fought, you know, and I used had a couple lines, but the movie that really gave me a push, I, I played uh, Art Sanella, and uh, uh, I actually wore a suit. I never showed my tattoo. It was the first time, you know. Otherwise, I always showed my. I, I wore a tie suit because I was a a gangster in a movie called Death Wish Four with Charles Bronson, and I got to meet Charles Bronson. You know, so it was like that's my one of my one of my heroes, and and I was hoping he was in Hollywood because I'd really met a bunch of Hollywood dicks. I mean, just you know, because movie stars, I hate you know people calling people movie stars because if you, like Robert De Niro, if you call him a movie star, I go no no no, I'm a, I'm an actor. I'm a you know you know I'm an actor. I'm not a movie stars are are the most pretentious people I've ever met in my life. Didn't Eddie Bunker say that to you? Be a Hollywood star, don't act like one. Eddie Bunker said his words, exact words were, when I started getting kind of recognized, because he was with me all the way, he says, Danny, everybody can think, the whole world can think you're a movie star, 
but you can't. And I love that. I just absolutely like you got it. And and then we went, we were standing by a movie star and we heard everybody, ooh. And then when he walked away, we heard him talk. That idiot, I'd like to knock that guy out. You know, it's like, so I, I, I never wanted to be the person that people talk bad about when I leave, you know. And uh, uh, so I'm not, I'm not a movie star. I'm a working actor and I work more than most movies. Do. <laughs> yeah, you do. I think you have like 19 films in post-production at the moment. So yeah. I, I got you. Hey, hey, as soon as this pandemic is over, we're off and running. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but what was that like though, making that tremendous radical change from your, your childhood from prison to, I mean, I'm going to call you a movie star because you are a movie star, but I mean, what was that like? You know what? It's uh, my ambition was was never to be a, a even a celebrity. My ambition was to be just a great dad. And and my two boys were born, and I was kind of I didn't want to be like my dad, but but I was always telling them I love you, I hug you, and stuff, and being with them and stuff. You know what I mean? But when my daughter was born, right, Danielle, I was just melted. It was like my little girl. And she was perfect little, she was like, well, I was a single parent for a while and I would we'd get in the car and then she would start, she was like three years old. Daddy, wait, my purse, my purse. You forgot my purse. You're three years old, what the hell you need with a purse? Dad, oh. And I would go get her purse and she would say something like, this doesn't match my shoes, you know? I was like, you're three, what do you, what do you got? 40 year old clone and, and so i would take her upstairs and then she'd get the purse that matched her shoes she was just a just a beautiful little girl completely you know what i mean and so this was just that that was the one that just like uh, we talk every day i don't talk to the boys every day they'll call me they'll call me hey what's up what's up how you doing my son is a master he just directed me in a film and uh so are you saying that's what kept you grounded in terms of becoming a Hollywood star? And more than anything, more than anything. And uh, when people would crowd us, you know, she's really good. People would crowd us for autographs and stuff, and I, 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 will, I will never refuse an autograph or a picture, right? Such a blessing to make, to make somebody's day with an autograph, you know, and, uh, and uh, I think my daughter said it, but... Daddy, that's why God made you an actor. Not to be a ooh, big star, but to sign autographs and make people's day and say, God bless you. Because I always do that, you know. And, and so I guess that's, that's what it is. That's why, you know. In terms of like when you see Hollywood stars trying to play gangsters and prisoners and Chicanos, what do you, what do you feel about that? I gotta say this, John Travolta in a movie. Yeah, I've said your name. He, he, they made a, they, they tried to make him look like me in this movie, right? Rugged face, mustache. And the, the trade said, John Travolta tried to be a bully. He made it to a high school bully. Danny Trejo was a bully in San Quentin. <laughs> like, yeah. John, I didn't say it, okay? <laughs> but, you know, I mean, Nobody can act like a gangster, like Robert De Niro. Nobody can act like Joe Pesci. These guys are really, but they know they're actors and they don't play this out. What I hate to see is uh, an actor that, that went to Juilliard and went to 
Juan Strasburgs went to those guys and they like, hey, come on, man, you were a dancer. What the hell? Who cares? The last thing I want to be, I don't want to be a tough guy. I want to, I wish I went to Juanilla Art or whatever it was, you know? Well, you went to San Quentin training. Well, on my resume, on my resume, me and Eddie put San Quentin drama art. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to ask you about Heat, one of my absolute favorites. You're incredible in it with De Niro, with Pacino. Um, tell me about that experience. Well, first of all, everybody was told, don't ask Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and Val Kilmer for an autograph. They don't take pictures, blah, blah, blah. I seen De Niro and I was holding the camera. I said, Bob, I think, yeah, come on. We took pictures. And, and well, my son was nine years old when I did Heat. And, uh, and uh, I met, I said, hey, Bob, this is my, notice I said, Bob, Bob, this is my son, Gilbert. Hey, Gilbert, this is Robert De Niro. And uh, Robert De Niro says, hi, Gilbert, and puts his hand out. My son, nine years old, went, you talking to me? You talking to me? You... Robert De Niro couldn't believe, oh, my. he couldn't, he was shocked. I said, Gilbert, you didn't see that movie? He said, the comedy channel, <laughs> everybody, and Gil, I think Gilbert has Robert De Niro's cell number. I don't, they became great friends. And I mean, when I did uh, Machete, Robert De Niro was on Machete and he did that for me. And so when, when, when we met, I was like, just so, you know, he's doing this movie and I'm in, right? And he goes, he'll, so he goes, cause we always joked about being number one on the call sheet, right? He goes, you number one, you number one, and I, I didn't know what to say. I said, "Can I get you some coffee, Mister?" <laughs> and we just both laughed. You know, I mean, because who? How could I be the star of this movie? Robert De Niro was there, and it was just such a oh, that was such an experience. Working with him was like uh, the highlight of 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 my movie career. You mentioned your son, who's a film director in his own right, and, and you, you, his name is Gilbert. And as we began the, the interview, you were talking about your uncle Gilbert. He was a big presence for you, but not always positive. Why did you choose to give your son his you name? You know what? Because if it wasn't for Gilbert, I, I wouldn't be here talking to you. You know, he did, he did what he thought I was going to need. He taught me what I thought. He, when I walked into San Quentin, I knew exactly what to do. When I was in juvenile hall, I knew don't take any step backwards, get the first punch in, you know, and just, and I mean, basically in my neighborhood, you had two alternatives. I mean, really, you could either be a, a, a laborer and work your, to death like my dad, or be a seamstress. I don't know. I, I don't know what else anybody did. All, I didn't know anybody, any lawyers. I didn't know any doctors. I didn't know any teachers that were Mexican. You know, everybody that I knew around me was a laborer. But the fact that he introduced you to, to crime and, and to drugs, and that, do you see a forgiveness there or? I remember when he tried to make amends right before he died, he was telling me he was really sorry. And I had just come home from doing that movie, uh, 
Penitentiary 3. And he would meet me at my house, me and a friend of mine named George Perry. And he would always have a pizza and uh, fried zucchini with, with uh, what do you call it? Like a dip? Ranch dressing, you know, and, and, uh, and we, would ha- we would eat uh, uh, at 2.30, 3.30 the morning when we get off work. And he'd be there. And, uh, and he was trying to make amends to me. And I said, shut up. Man. Are you kidding? If you didn't do that, I wouldn't be here. I'd be a Republican somewhere, you know what I mean? What happened was was what ha- was what happened. You know, we all have our paths to take. We can get off them, or we can not start. All I am to kids in juvenile hall is hope. Saying, "Hey, you." But you're a completely different influence to those kids. Oh yeah, but that's what I mean. When I go there and say, "Look, I'm a time traveler. I I I've been to where you're going." You don't have to go there because my uncle, my uncle helped me get there. Now I'm back to tell you, hey, look, let's do this better. You know, let's figure out a way to go help this, mow this lady's yard. Or there's this old people in the neighborhood, let's help paint their house. Or do, that's the stuff that we do. You know, and all of a sudden, the joy that you get from some, some elderly lady giving you lemonade. And with tears in her eyes saying, thank you so much. You know, it's, it's kind of like really, there's no feeling, no drug, no feeling, no nothing in the world that'll, that'll do that for you. You still live in Pacoima. How is Danny Trejo a different neighbor today than he was when he was 13? <laughs> so funny you ask, but there was uh, four guys living in my house, right? And, and uh, the guy, my assistant, Mario, I met him in San Quentin when I was doing Blood In, Blood Out. And I told him about the program that I was on. And I told him, hey, we can do this. Anyway, he ended up coming out of prison and getting sick. And I hired him as my assistant and got well. And he got a liver transplant. And this lady one time came up, my neighbor came to my house and knocked on the door, an angel who had just gotten out of prison, did 22 years, came out and she handed him the keys and said, uh, would you tell Danny to watch my house because we're going to we'll be away for two weeks and feed my cat and, and gave him the keys. He came back, there was like six of us in the house watching the fights. Hey, does your neighbor know that everybody in this house has been busted for burglary at least one time? And I said, yeah, now watch your house. Angel and Joey, they they actually patrolled the perimeter of her house every night, checking every window, checking every, her cat got fat. You know what I mean? and, and, and she, she had a better alarm system than anybody in the world. So that's what you do. You're protecting your community. I'm still doing the same thing I did in prison. <laughs> we had a little earthquake a couple of days ago and four of our neighbors ran to our house. Oh. You know? Has it ever been difficult for you to stay sober? These, I mean, it's been five decades, I know, but I mean, when you tell the kids, I think, I think that I saw the real side of drinking and using, you know, and so drugs and alcohol. When I see them, I don't see 
the party that people see. I don't see the good time. I see showering with 50 men and trying not to look. I see uh, stabbing somebody over two packs of cigarettes. I see uh, people being thrown off a tear. I see the bad side, you know, the crashing a car, killing two people. You know, it's like, that, that's, that's alcohol, that's drugs. You know, for me, that might not be for anybody else. So when I say that, that I've dedicated my life to helping other people, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't yell at anybody that doesn't want to help. I don't, it's fine. I understand you don't have enough time. You're married to your job. I understand that. You know what I mean? You know, you, you can't, you're busy. I owe, just I owe my life. You know, and so the, I don't want to ever stop helping, you know what I mean? Because I'm paying back and maybe those movie stars don't owe. And believe me, I ask them, I, hey, you want to go to this juvenile hall with me? Oh, well, you know what I'm doing? Okay, I got it. You know, I got it. Yeah. I'm, but are you worried about the kids? I'm thinking we're living in these super difficult COVID times with extreme lockdowns absolutely. and disillusion economically and, and the kids in your area. What do you tell them? You know what? We have a big sign outside my house that says, congratulations, class of 2020. And, you know, first responders, big sign and, uh, and nurses, God gave us doctors and nurses and, and uh, uh, people stop and take pictures by them, you know, and they come into my door and knock and I go out and take pictures with them, you know, and, but the thing that I tell them is this is just a, a spot, you know, this is just what we're doing, you know, wear a mask, come over to my house, you know, and, and, uh, we all kind of wear masks and and uh, and we feed a lot of people and we give up a lot of clothes and that's the helping is just it's really simple if you have an old shirt give it to a homeless guy you know if you have we buy socks we always call it sock of the homeless because we always just give them socks you know and and uh and I, it's such a joy it's just such a joy to give somebody four pairs, five pairs of socks and, and they almost cry, you know, and they, they uh, just, just give you a thumbs up and they don't, sometimes they don't even know how to say thank you. <clears throat> you know, they've been, they feel like they've been thrown away. They don't know how to thank you. They just look at you and you see that in their eyes, you know, you know, thank you for caring and gotcha home, right, it's okay. Right. And one of the things I suppose you can, you give a lot is your Trejo's tacos. You have a cookbook out, um, which my impression is that it's a real love letter to your Los Angeles and mostly to your mom. Um, how is she reflected in those recipes? You know what? She, she was like a great cook. She was a great cook. And I was sorry, really, that she was kind of like married to the house. We had great meals the first of the month. And then towards the end of the month, we had stuff like we mix it and it's out of the cupboard and shut up, don't ask, eat it. You know, it was all great. Because money was tight. Yeah. Yeah, at the end of the month, absolutely. I know that Anthony Bourdain was a huge fan of your talk. He did a whole show about. Hey, he said he wouldn't eat any place in LA but my restaurant. He loved it. He ate. That guy could eat. And he loved the vegan. Okay. <laughs> well, I love the carne asada, so I'm completely <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so finally, I just have to ask you about your coming projects because you're helping all these people, you're doing all these cookbooks, but you have so many, I mean, you must be out filming all the time. I have a film coming up that we're going to do. It's called uh, Social Security. 
It's with Craig Moss. It's the guy I did Badass with. And then my son wrote a film called Acha, which is hatchets. Fighting with hatchets. But I really, I just love it. Man. My son directed me in a film called uh, From a Son. It's me and him actually working together. And it was like, wow. The heaviest thing I've ever done, you know, so. Thank you so much for your time. And I have to say hello from my five-year-old, who is an absolute Spy Kids fan. And from my- Hey, it's Uncle Machete. What's his name? His name is Benjamin. Benjamin, hey, don't forget. You are now an official Spy Kid. All right. (laughs) Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you so much to Danny Trejo. The documentary Inmate Number One, The Rise of Danny Trejo is streaming now. And his cookbook is called Trejo's Tacos, Recipes and Stories from L.A. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It really helps others to find us. And send me your thoughts and comments. I'm on Twitter, at Christina Biru. See you next time. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.